Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Friends, for a long time now, we've been walking around with a sort of stone in our shoe. It's an unavoidable feeling throughout the day, and that feeling is it's the end of the world. The end of the world shows up again and again in history, of course, but right now we're in one of those end times, and it's risen into public consciousness. That's why I say it's the stone in the shoe. We're aware of it, even when we're not aware of it. It's just with us. And I want to know how this new presence of the end of the world changes the way we walk, changes our sense of balance, changes the feeling we have about our day and how we talk to each other. If something permeates the general consciousness rather than just being sort of hidden or repressed, it has a different effect on us. It becomes a kind of companion. So what does it mean to not just intellectually or creatively entertain ourselves with the apocalypse and movies about meteors and, you know, terminators and that sort of thing, but to actually experience it in our daily lives? And there is, I think, also, to paraphrase Marx using his own uh, occasionally supernatural language, there is a specter haunting the end of the world, and that specter is witchcraft. It's magic. It's the occult. Whether it's in the symbols being used by the political elite or the black magic conspiracy theories of QAnon, if it's the presence of new thought and new age in the U.S. Democratic primary, say in the words of Marianne Williamson, for uh, instance, or if it's the resurgence uh, in the interest in tarot and astrology or the aesthetics of witchcraft that you see on Instagram, we see again and again the presence of this sort of new, old, new version of looking at the world paired with the constant presence of the world's end. The end of the world and witchcraft are siblings in our moment. And maybe that's not a surprise since the end of the world is always uh, preceded by prophecies from oracles. It's always seen um, through uh, its portents by the knowing, the people that can read the signs. And the end of the world is also always changing the way we relate to time. So, you know, if we think that there's a kind of end of the road coming, many of us sensibly, I guess, move away from the idea of the linearity of time. And we start to think in layers of time. We think in synchronicities and correspondences. We think in creative ruptures outside the normal flow of things. In other words, we think in witchcraft, in the terms and in the substances that make up magic. So I needed to discuss all this. I needed to think about this more, consider it more, and give it flesh. So I invited two people I know, people who who are working with witchcraft and art in the apocalypse and apocalypse in witchcraft and art, Alkistis Demick and Peter Gray. They're also authors, performers, and the founders of the occult slash witchcraft publishing house, Scarlet Imprint. One of the most interesting aspects of this conversation, I think, um, before I tell you a little bit about the conversation, and one of the most vital aspects is that Alkistis and Peter and I, we come from differing traditions. They're working primarily uh, with this being called Babylon, which they have both written about and performed about extensively. Um, this is a being that appears, you know, uh, 
for most people uh, in the form of the Whore of Babylon, Revelations, but it also appears uh, in different forms as well, in Thelema uh, through Aleister Crowley and Enochian magic, um, in certain uh, myths and uh, myth cycles. Whereas I, I'm working with mostly this kind of Christian esotericism through this uh, approach to the world called anthroposophy. And there is a tension <laughs> between our traditions. It's almost a sort of antagonism because uh, these two beings uh, might be seen, especially if you just have the kind of normal uh, suburban reading of the Bible, uh, as antagonistic beings to each other. So what's important to remember when you listen to this conversation um, is that through me, and through Peter and Alkistas and through our conversation, there is a conversation also taking place between these end-of-the-world and beginning-of-the-world beings, a conversation between Christ and Babylon. And that's something that I like to bring to every episode of the show, not a conversation between Christ and Babylon, but just an understanding that real conversations become sites for the interaction of spirit as well is through that tension, it's a tension found only in friendship, I think. So through that tension found only in friendship that we end up asking a lot of big questions for our time and go into exploring a lot of uh, sort of new or uh, unilluminated corners. So we ask questions together on this episode like, what can we learn from the dead? What are spirits anyway? I always think about this question uh, as a really important one for anybody who doesn't really think it through. So maybe you're a materialist, just dialectical materialist, socialist, whatever, um, or you're someone who uses magic but don't really consider it that much. Uh, you know, what? what is it? What are these things that we talk about when we talk about spirits? When you encounter a spirit, will it come and make your plates fly around the room and smash against the wall, or will you see a giant devil in a circle? Ultimately, we end up discussing the fact that people cannot see the spiritual world very often, and then further, you can't read the spiritual world <laughs> um, in either case until you've become sort of emptied enough and ready, till we become a sort of vessel. Also, we ask, what does it mean to live at the end of the world? What does it mean to make art and have sex and engage with non-human beings and letting go of savior narratives? What does it mean if this really is the end? What if this is the real end this time? What does it mean if we think that and it really is the end, but we go on? <laughs> and also, what is our part? What is our part in all of this? How should we participate? And what are... Uh, the roles of the dead in our lives. In other words, what might we learn while we're alive from those who have already been through death, through their own end? I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Before we start, I, I want to say that um, I'm focusing this show a bit more as time goes on. I'm understanding what the show is really about, and I realize that this show is trying to create with each episode and the commingling and coincidence of these episodes, a sort of new worldview for us to work with and explore through. Um, and I'm still understanding what that worldview is. <laughs> but I think people who listen regularly are starting to get a picture of it. 
And in general, if you get new views, new visions, new information, ideas, uh, if you're inspired to have conversations of your own from this show, please do support the show via Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, C-O-N-N-E-R-H-A-B-I-B, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. One of the ways I do the worldview work on this show is I bring spiritual ideas to leftist political action and economic understanding, as well as postmodern philosophies and critical theory, and I try to do that in a way that's accessible to as many people as possible. You can hear that on previous episodes, like um, episode 118, where Phil Lagarde, who published a book with uh, Peter and Alkistis's uh, publishing house, um, we talk about magical landscapes and sounds and music. Or on Against Everyone with Connor B45, I, I talk with Ben Chasney of Six Organs of Admittance, uh, and we investigate with his guitar there <laughs> the occult aspects of chords and octaves through the theory of Rudolf Steiner. Gordon White and I uh, also elaborate on what spirits are on episode 103. Um, occultist acupuncturist Ari Thorsen and I uh, discuss occult experiences including demons and time travel on episode 103. And back on episode 68, Lisa Romero and I discuss the occult importance of sex and sexuality. These are all available for free and for everyone. Um, and the show keeps happening because of the people that support it. Thank you so much to all you who do support. And to new members, hello, welcome. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Um, you know, and I really would love if you like this show and you think that real conversations are transformative uh, to support it. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. If you're in a bad spot, okay, I understand everyone is dealing right now. Um, and the cool thing about Patreon is that you can give on any level that you think you can handle, which is great because it's like a lot of sticks propping up the table or a lot of legs propping up the table, you know what I mean, um, rather than just one big one that gets kicked out like a sponsor, you know, and plus I don't really want sponsors. I want the people who love the show to give to it and to interact with all of you who love it. So, but if you're in too bad of a spot, uh, to support or too anxious. I understand. We're all dealing. That's why um, some things that you can do that are helpful are give it a five-star rating on iTunes um, and a positive review. It's great. You can't troll on iTunes. It doesn't work that way. You just get more visibility the more five-star ratings you have, so you could go there and support it. Um, that way, subscribe on your favorite platform. Tell people about it. Post if you like an episode. Post on your social media. Have discussions about it um, publicly because it's really about just pushing these kinds of conversations into public and inspiring other people to have them and to think through them. Okay, that's it. I know people um, might be sick of hearing me talk about Patreon, but uh, it is <laughs> the way that this show works, and it's so much better than you know going through all that stuff about apocalypse and witchcraft and then suddenly telling you to like go to some web design site and support them and get a coupon for 15% off or some bullshit like that. No, I think this is the best way to do it. So thanks for bearing with me when I talk about it. I'm not apologetic about it, but I know a lot of you who follow the show have heard me talk about it many times before. Okay, so <laughs> here we go. Uh, let's talk about the witchcraft at the end of the world with Peter Gray and Alkistis Demick. 
everybody is against everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Peter Anakistas. Hi. Hi, Connor. Hi, Connor. Good to see you. <laughs> um, okay, so um, the end of the world. You guys really called this one. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to start. Yeah, start with the end um, and start with something, Peter, that you said once uh, in a conversation where you were talking about how you know when you meditate, you get this kind of fidget where you're like, oh, if I could just get my you know, my legs cross the right way, or, you know, if I could just uh, scratch that itch or whatever, I could finally get, you know, everything in the right order. And I think you were using it to relate to magic in a certain way. But I was also thinking about it as the conditions of the time that we're in, where we they, people keep, they seem to want to keep um, changing all the conditions of the world to be able to do the work that they need to do. And it's becoming increasingly, I think, clear to people that that actually is not, not available in the way maybe that they thought it was at least. So I thought we'd start there. There's a kind of fidgeting in the apocalypse right now. <laughs> and so we talk about those conditions a little bit and, uh, and that fidget. Yeah. It's that kind of insanity that when you have something to do, you, um, you reorganize your record collection and your bookshelves and um, put everything into alphabetical order and then say, well, maybe if I change the lighting or it's one of those series of excuses that people go through. So, so the example with, with meditation is very clear for anyone who has even dabbled with meditation and sat down for five minutes. They suddenly discover that their mind keeps suggesting things that might make the experience better. You know, maybe they need a different zafu, maybe they need a different lighting, maybe they want to light some incense, maybe, you know. And and this is all the kind of bullshit that we throw at ourselves to prevent ourselves from doing the hard work, which is which is being present, which is understanding that the circumstances that we find ourselves in are what we have to grapple with. And with with apocalypse and with apocalyptic thinking, um, and the end of the world, it's extremely tempting to try to to try and avoid doing the work itself because the circumstances are never right. You're never in the best place. You're always, you're always, you know, you're always dealing with things as they are. It's like when you're fighting. If you fight, everyone who goes into a fight goes into a fight injured. Mm -hmm. Like no one goes into a fight in a pristine condition. Like, same with dancing. And same with dancing. Dancers are always... I found this as well. When I started working with Peter, he described it as I was being thrown onto the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And like all time has passed since he said that, the more real and realistic I see how that is because I was completely unprepared. To do, to do, to be a publisher, to be a writer, to talk on on behalf of um, the spirits that I, I um, work with. So I think you find that the you, you just have to make do with with what you are, where you are, and you see this in the animal world. You see how resilient animals are; they don't complain. You know, the dog carries on walking with three legs, even two legs. I've seen dogs and cats managing. They don't they don't get caught up in the the difficulty of the situation they just get on with it and keep going it's, it's as if the will to live is stronger than the the, the, the feeling sorry the feeling uh, agitated or fidgety and i think mm. this is something that humans are particularly susceptible to this uh, and mentally and physically as well when we're meditating it's also the body that starts like talking to you and telling you like, to do something else yeah um, yeah i think I mean, it's oh go ahead I think the useful thing about the occult is when it, it gives people 
um, a very clear tool set to be present and to deal with these issues. And, and regardless of where you're at, I mean, we're we're quite extreme individuals in the you know we're we're devotees of the goddess Babylon. We run an occult publishing company. I mean, we're we're, we're, we're extremely marginal um, culturally. However, um, many of the tools which have been used by occultists um, are also applicable to plenty of people who are simply householders, who are simply people who who are trying to understand who they are, what their place in the world is, where they come from, um, and where they're going, and also to sit and be present with with the extreme difficulty that we now face, which is that we're we're in a world in crisis. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that we're able to have these kind of conversations is that um, our views, which um, which have been quite fringe even within the occult, um, have been somewhat um, played out in world events. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult now to find someone who doesn't think in apocalyptic terms or think about the other world. I mean, we... we I it's all over the papers. It's all over the papers. Yeah. It's mainstream now. Yeah. It's sort of like we've stopped talking about it. We stopped talking about it. We saw we we we've actually stopped, you know, we stopped stopped tweeting like disasters because it's like everyone's got everyone's got Everyone it now. Knows that. I mean if you don't realise <laughs> if you don't realise what deep trouble we're in, then then you you're really, you know. Mm. Well, I, I, yeah, I was thinking about that. So when you're both talking, I'm thinking about <laughs> like so we think that the end, the end of the world or the apocalypse is difficult. Like imagine how difficult it must be for the spiritual world to enact itself through us. I mean, what a pain in the ass, like for, for them, you know, <laughs> like how, how, like, you know, the conditions of their, um, the presence of their being through our actions and our thoughts and our relation, relationality is got to be sort of extremely, li- seem extremely limiting in a sort of way. Now, I know they don't necessarily experience the sort of emotional states that we, we might in the same way, but, you know, and then, and then you get this question where it's like, so Alquistas, if you're talking about dancing and the battlefield and, and the difficulty and all that, like, well, <laughs> the option is always there to be like, I guess I'm not going to do it, right? I guess I won't, you know. And But when you ask yourself that question, you know, for, for a lot of us, the answer is resolutely like, no, like this is what, <laughs> this is what has been, I've been selected to do. And the spiritual world, if you don't do it, will be like, okay, well, I've found someone else now to do this through, which sucks when you see that as well. <laughs> well, I think when you're like, I missed that opportunity, you know? Yeah. I've had for a long time, a, a sort of attitude of to say yes to things, to opportunities. Obviously I, I divine and see whether it, mm-hmm. it's good. But there's always been an openness to do radical things that I've taken for a very long time in my life. It was my sort of survival mechanism. So I began to dance when I was 29. And I just started straight away. I did a performance before I had like done any training or anything. Um, so I kind of think, and the same with Scarlet Imprint. So you kind of throw yourself into things and then that transforms you. And then you begin the process of um taking your art seriously and mastering it and, and exploring going deeper into these things and being more prepared and conditioning your body. But we're also continually working in, in a state of crisis. I mean, we're, we're working with Scarlet Imprint, for example. We do everything, just the two of us. And this is, a, I think, the same for many people in work now, but just to afford to kind of pay rent and, you know, live. 
you have to submit to kind of a crazy regime of of work and like not enough time to like nurture who you are, your art or whatever. So we don't have those kind of luxuries. We we're on the battlefield, and I think this is applicable mm. to many many people, whether you're an occultist or not. This kind of thinking is um, we just have to do, and it's by doing you get somewhere and if you're slain on the battlefield then the presence moves through you and into the next mm. person and it's not so individualistic it's more like a, a an effort of a group a, a larger body yeah yeah i mean and i think it it values the individual the the, the individuated attenuation and affection it's not that that has no value to it that is that cold but it but it but it but it definitely it needs it needs to live and you know its will to live and stand up on two legs like the cat you know the, you know it needs to continue and so it will find and i i think it's interesting because i really i, I wanted to start by sort of just for the people that are you know, you you guys get to talk to sort of magically activated or at least magically interested people all the time. So there are lots of people that listen to my show that they they think it's cool, but you know, uh, they're not necessarily in the, the the trenches or they don't know why it might be valuable yet. So I want I wanted to go there right away, but what I'm seeing actually is maybe we need to talk about what's happening in our moment first to set the stage for why that might need to happen. So the first, th- why we might need to engage with these spiritual presences and, and, and beings and do magic or whatever other practices we might engage with that, that allow us some proximity aware awareness to them. But so there's something's happening right now. And whether you'd want to call it the apocalypse or not, I think you, Peter, like you just, you name it perfectly. Cause it's like, look, it's, it's brought into the awareness. So it's, it belongs to all of us in a way now that it didn't before. It's, it, it's like we have it as a stone in our pocket or a sort of motion in our thoughts everywhere we go. So now something new actually has happened. There is something else happening right now. So now that that's there, even if you didn't believe it was the apocalypse, well, too bad because you still got the stone in your pocket. So what do we, so, so what do we do? So maybe we can sort of talk about the presence of the apocalypse in people's lives now. Well, previously we were in a position um, which was outlined by a a thinker called Dmitry Orlov, who talked about collapse and talked about how it was unevenly distributed. So it was very possible to live in a place where you felt that it was the end of the world, but other people... um, wouldn't have that experience. It wasn't distributed. It was, it was, it was in pockets. So there were pockets of absolute failure, whether that's, um, whether that's individuals who lost their livelihoods and found themselves living on the street or whether it's people living in places on the climate change front line that have seen, you know, their ecosystem collapse. Um, or as we see in America now, um, you know, fires destroying the place. Um, but the change that occurred, um, it, probably in the last year is that everyone is feeling it. Everyone is feeling it. Um, And they're feeling it like never before because they know people or they themselves have seen it. So the West Coast of America is on fire. Brazil is on fire. Australia was on fire. Um, We've we've had this ridiculous, um, ridiculous COVID moment, which has shown that our infrastructures are extremely fragile. 
Um, and there's a politicians and the political class have planning. zero planning, zero ability. So, you know, like you, we're, 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 we're fond of reading the critical theories. We're fond of reading like Foucault, even if we disagree with everything he says. But, oh, yeah. but we're all, we're all in a moment of absolute crisis now. Like as a species, there is a sense that we are all under threat. I think people actually can sense, um, they sensed with the spectral threat of this disease that their death was hanging in the balance. And I know the mortality rates have now been, um, reduced to something pretty infinitesimal unless you're 80 with comorbidities. But there was a moment when, when people were thinking, this could kill me. Yeah, it was a very strange This could kill me. And that hasn't happened since, like, you know, the effect of AIDS in the, on the, on the gay population, mm-hmm. you know, I can remember that being, being proximate to that and feeling the chilling effect of that and people, people dying who we knew, people getting sick who we knew. And, this has had, this has had a much more distributed effect because mm. people have felt that regardless of their sexuality or their lifestyle or whatever, the possibility of their death has come to the forefront. Mm. And I think it's one of those crises that, that, that forces people to confront their place in the universe, to understand who they are and to ask these questions because all the bullshit goes when death comes. <laughs> You know? you, well, because it can't, yeah, yeah, it can't, it can't withstand the proximity of the dead. Like yeah. what the 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 presence of the dead is, if you are open to it, it the presence of the dead itself is a healing act, which is very sure. interesting. And so, and 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 grief, you know, um, and, and grieving is a portal to uh, being able to understand that proximity. You know, so I think it's interesting, you know, you, you both have spent a lot of time writing, writing and performing about around a figure at the end that is supposedly appears at the end of the world, like in sort of layman's parlance, you know. And so you've done a lot of kind of front loaded grieving and mourning and, and, you know, like engagement with destruction because, so why I'm going on about this is like when I noticed everything kind of like falling apart or you know the the illusion of things falling apart or whatever you want to say i was like well i already knew that capitalism was bad and that work sucked and that you know all this like that's no problem for me but then i started so i started to notice the things that actually were difficult for me that weren't for other people like i was like okay well now i have to spend you know more time probably more time has passed since I haven't had sex since I started having sex. So like (laughs) I now have to ask myself, what did I need from this? And not in a bullshitty, like, was I just looking for affection? Like that kind of stupid, you know, basic stuff, but rather like what role does this play in my life now that the, the vacuum is providing me with a chance to reflect on the black mirror of meaning, you know, here. So so I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, I, I know you've done a lot of front-loaded kind of mourning, oh. grieving, all that. So what for you was coming up for either of you that was like, oh, now the confrontation with this begins because the space, the void has been made for it to emerge? Well, when we, when we started our work, one of the things that I was trying to do very um, – very deliberately that, that gets missed by by people is that I was trying to deconstruct um, 
the, the apocalyptic script that we have um, that runs beneath Western culture, particularly the um, apocalyptic script that we've we've taken on through Christianity, mm. through the idea that there will be a confrontation and a renewal and that this is a disaster and we can um, any signs that the world is going to rack and ruin is 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 not to be worried about because because Christ will return and everything will be okay. Um, and I think we're 2,000 years past that point now. Um, <laughs> so the the position that we've been that we've been putting forward um, has not been a negative view because apocalypse apocalypse and destruction is always with us. It's written into our DNA. The second that we're born, we begin to die. I mean, death walks with us every step of the way, and it's it's how how you respond to that. It's it's living with it's living with passion. It's living with like. It's seizing everything with the understanding of how beautifully temporary this moment is. And not not only the personal moment, but the moment that we share with the other people who are here at the moment the and with the other beings that we share. Mm. So you, what, yeah, what, what the change, change has been is that we're now at a stage where we have a, we have a wider cultural um, meditation on this. People are, people are not going to go back to business as usual. There is no appetite for it. Um, and how that plays out is going to be really quite fascinating <laughs> um, and difficult for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people are, are clearly having some, some serious mental health issues um, as a result of their confinement, um, as a result of what they're seeing going on out of the corners of their eyes in the world. And, you know, it is... It is an opportunity to recenter ourselves and to also reach out and create create that community to 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 reestablish those networks. You know, just the simple fact that people have been able to do some fucking gardening for the first time in like you know their mm. miserable, endless work lives has helped people reconnect with the <laughs> fact that you know we we we're part of a living system. You know, we can well, yeah, so I want to definitely get to all the sort of like tactics, strategies, benefits, all that kind of stuff. I love that that the the connectivity with the etheric world through gardening is one yeah. of like the, I think the best ones. But I'm also but so I'm still wondering maybe Alkistus, like do you want to take this up like like what was like what <laughs> it's a personal question, but it's like what was the sense of loss given that the other things that people were losing you guys have pretty much, I think, moved past, and so have I, in in, yeah. in so much as one can move past. Yeah. But but so for me, there was a surprise loss. It was like, check this out. I've been waiting for you to investigate, you know. And I'm wondering what maybe <laughs> that was, what that was for you. Um, help! <laughs> 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 this is. I'm either going to be really personal or be evasive by be accident. Personal. Very personal. Um. I think with the lockdown and the separation from other people and particularly from my family and uh, my parents who are aging and my sister who's very young, um, at the same time as feeling my body collapsing because I've had like, um, I've been in sort of precarious health for like five years or so now and I've been having to work through it. So the the lockdown just sort of forced me to confront the sort of physical deterioration of my body and and it's difficulty in withstanding the kind of forces that I know are coming and that I have to deal with because of what I do as my work 
like um, ritually as well as um, with Scarlet. So there's a kind of duty of care to Scarlet, which is, like I said in another interview, our magical child and has a life of its own and, and demands uh, you know, a lot of energy sacrificed to it. But there's also my own personal work and having to confront at the same time, because my work is based completely in the body, confronting the change of my body, but also at the same time as this, the kind of the, 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 the psychic rending that's been going on as well. So I've always had, um, uh, I've always been bipolar, so I've had to deal with a lot more uh, erratic swings and uh, fluxing my energy and so on. So it's been quite sort of, um, the, the very tool that I work with for everything has been on the front line has been the difficult thing for me and at the same time the sort of distance from my family which is such an important thing to me mm. yeah well yeah thank you thank you for sharing all of that i mean i think it, you know i know I some I want you. <laughs> <laughs> no no i'm i'm very first of all that you know i'm glad i feel happy that you feel that this is a even though it's public like a uh an embracing enough you know conversation to, okay. to offer okay. those things but you know, like I know somebody who's a she, she's a pretty intense occultist, and she got Lyme's disease during this. You know, yeah. and she was just like, okay, like the, the you know she's doing all her work, which she's been very called to do, and then just this thing that appears in the middle of it that yeah. makes a new demand of her, and yeah. you know, and her idea is just like, um, I'm being asked to to go forward in spiritual work with relationship to Lyme, like with relationship yeah. to this new well, organism that's, that's in my cells. So that's well, the illness question or the, the damage question or the injury question of this moment is like, I'm being asked to move forward with yeah. this as a companion. So that's, it's, it's not the, it's not the new agey thing, which is like every crisis is an opportunity. That's true too on its own level, but it's not as simple as that. It's like, now you've got a, now you've got a companion. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's, yeah. yeah. I'm very frank because I think it's, these things can get covered up very easily. And I'm a marginal person anyway. It's not like I have any status in society. So I don't really care. But yeah, I think it's important to recognize that we are all in these states of crisis different, to different extents and in different ways. But we are carrying things and it should give us more compassion for each other. I would hope that mm. that starts. Um, manifesting more in the world for each other and for other beings too. But <sighs> I think it's also interesting to go forward. I, 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 I've been very influenced by Anthony Nato in my work for a long, long, long time. And he also showed me from a young age, which was the reason I became so engrossed in his work, was that no matter what conditions your body is placed under, you still keep going, you still produce the work, you still like defy God, you still stand against fate. And I kind of felt that um, this strength, it's not a strength in the new age sense where you sort of overcome something, but it's almost like a disappearance of the mundane and an allowing of this sort of angelic or spiritual self to to emerge more because something has to break in order for these boundaries to be transgressed and the boundaries that are limiting our understanding of our relationship to nature, our relationship to other people or other creatures. I think one of the things that enables those boundaries to, to, to burst or for them to become 
the means of communication is actually through illness, through disability, through, mm. through various biases of whatever nature. So I try to see it, uh, it's, it's incorporated into my work because it, it inevitably has to be, um, as that's the state of my body. But it's why as a dancer, I'm not, I'm a Bhutto dancer and not, you know, a modern dancer, for instance. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I just want to say, like, for people that are, uh, correct me if I'm wrong about this, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. But, you know, for people who are listening, what it might sound like is like, well, I just throw myself into the pain or whatever. But that's actually not, that's not, that's not it in, in its way. As far as I can tell, it's like, you know, Rudolf Steiner says this thing, it sounds like weirdly anachronistic, but he says, you know, come hell or high water, I will make, I will find my way to the spirit, you know? And he's like, that's what we need. But he actually doesn't mean that you're gritting your teeth and working through it. He means you, you, you look upon it with equanimity and at the same time, you're, you Mm. may be experiencing that wild pain or that wild desire or that wild, it's just that it doesn't, obliterate your consciousness at the same time like they cohabitate they become partners in this in, in the work yeah i've been very influenced but i kind of think i'm a cross between a sort of uh, a child of the sad where you are both <laughs> Justine and juliet at the same time you embrace all these roles and at the oh. same time like this tantric vision of embracing experience no matter how it presents itself to you and whichever side of the equation you happen to be on, you know, suffering or, or, or bringing it. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that um, undifferentiated, um, uh, the sort of non-dualism, I guess, it's a kind of form of, yeah. yeah Becoming so part of the flow of consciousness of beings and things. And mm. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> no, no, I mean, what you know, like I remember, you know, like p- porn is not, my, my porn was not magical work. It had magical effects in the world, of course, but it was not magical work itself. But having sex for eight hours, you know what I mean? It's not fucking comfortable, you know, and you have to exhibit and feel pleasure when you're performing that. So it's it, it's a completely weird state of consciousness. I mean, nobody makes porn for eight hours anymore because people are just doing OnlyFans. But the act of doing that for a studio, it could yeah. very well last that long. But um Okay, so so what? I, so maybe we've set the stage enough for people to think, okay, maybe what these three uh, strangers are talking about is um, might be useful. It sounds interesting to do in this time. So, so I think we might want to pull apart kind of spirit stuff now a little bit for people because I think you know you write about you both write about, you know, contacting and interacting with spirits. And I don't think that people, I just don't think that people know what that means. And I don't, I especially don't think that people in magical communities know what that means, but I, but I definitely don't think that like people in um, people who are just sort of listening to this with interest, you know, or maybe think it's metaphorical or whatever, like all the questions that rise up for them, like, well, is it just cause they did mushrooms? Is it a metaphor? Is it like, do they see it? Like all this kind of stuff. And I think there are varying answers to those questions but I think the most vexing thing for people is like to have the question completely unanswered. So while I know that both of you can't answer how that would happen for others, I think it would be interesting to maybe take an example and discuss how it happens for you. So when you say you're engaging with a, mm-hmm. with a spirit 
and we find maybe that useful to the perspective of our time, perspective of our moment. What is that? What's happening there? What's actually going on in a way that would be maybe not easy, but at least a foothold for understanding for people that are not going through that? Okay. Um, I think the problem that most people have when they approach talking about spirit is that there's a lack of, um, there's a lack of groundedness in their personal lives and their personal circumstances and the place that they find themselves in. Um, I think place is something that's really overlooked by moderns to a, a huge degree. Um, and I think partly that's because the, the digital dislocates um, and, and atomizes to such a degree that, that we find it very difficult to be present. So one of the, one of the first exercises that you find with, with many groups is, um, is, you know, you know, literally walk outside your door and like identify, identify the, the, the plants that are growing like out of the cracks in the pavement or in the local park and what, what is there in the local graveyard and who is there that's actually about and what is there that wants to engage with you and what is it you need to be engaging with. Um, so for people, it's finding, finding both what their work is, why they're here, what their, um, so let me give, let me give an example. So looking at like, so for example, most people will have a relationship with their family, which will may be good, it may be bad. Some of those people will have a relationship with, with members of their family who died. So their work will have a, a death component. So they will be talking to members of their family, um, either in dream or um, in visiting or in going to the local going to the graveyard and tending the grave. These are like very simple, like human things that we do. So before, before you go out looking for spirit in a, you know, in a, in a book, um, however nice the book is, you need to understand where you sit in your ecology. Where do you sit in relation to your personal dead? Where do you sit in relation to the people who lived in the place where you live? And that's also you... the elemental aspect of this. So places all have like a characteristic that is elemental. So the elemental layer of spirits, which aren't human, but which have been interacting and shaping the land for millennia, are also what you engage with here. I mean, Peter's work in Cornwall is very much to do with the sort of Cornish. Yeah, so, so my, my, my transposed fallen, fallen angel work um, in Cornwall is, is all very much about the the environment, like literally, literally the stones, the the winds, the you know, sea. the sea, the you know. There's a beautiful essay about that in uh, Brazen Vessel for people that are listening. That the the intensity of corn, the yeah, uh, Cornish yeah, landscape. I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel, but this is my personal experience. Like because because as a magician, I I feel that I was very much like made by made by this place and made by the elements so so what my magic looks like is is very different from what someone else's magic will look like so if you're if you're living in los angeles or like you know or you know a suburb outside of london or you know cities have a very strong spirit don't they people, always people's practice will come people's practice comes out of who they are and what they do the problem is that that you can't it's a, it's such a personal path magic it's such a personal path. Although there are, although there are, you know, there are things that you can share with other people who practice. You have to find it within yourself, and you have to find it within the land. 
and you have to find it within the spirits that respond to you. So you find people who, who if they go out for a walk in the woods, they find themselves drawn to particular trees. They find themselves drawn to particular plants. And this happens over and over again. Or, you know, here, for example, we've got, you know, we've got so many holy wells. Some people are drawn to that. And that becomes the focus of their work. And it's finding, it's finding what those things are and what those things need, what they ask from you and what you can give to them. And yeah. Can I, can I just interject something real quickly, though? Because I think we're already kind of down a path like I think it's all very important, but I think we've already maybe leapfrogged a little bit because I think, I think that people, um, like, well, the, so the first hurdle is that people think that like a spirit is going to come into the living room and knock shit over like in Buffy, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like, and 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 then the, the the alternating problem is that there are people in magical communities that are saying no, that absolutely never happens, right? Yeah. So we have this like these two. Like these, first there's like, what is a spirit? Is it just a monster that comes in and knocks shit over that I can see that picks up my belongings? And then you, and, and then you have people who have some magical experience say, absolutely not. It's this or it's this or it's this. And a lot of times those people are saying things like, um, you know, like, uh, just, you know, <laughs> just like go out and like talk to a stone where that is actually something that you can do that is related to magic. But um, it's such in contrast with what people who aren't in it are expecting and the way that they understand it. And then also precludes the possibility of this other thing, which actually does happen sometimes, yeah. you know? So, yeah. so the, I think the main component of what you're saying that addresses that is already there, which is like, it's different for everybody. And you ha just have to understand it's different. And also spirits are independent and they will manifest you in different ways. So they often appear in dreams mm. or in visionary experience when scrying or whatever. It's not like they, they necessarily appear before you. We've had shadowy figures. You can yeah. make out forms, but they don't, or they, they take form out of the incense or um, something that you've provided for them. But, and they will go into that. So um, an object you work with, a statue, can become a repository of this sort of frequent interaction with spirit and attain its own sort of mm, sense of being inhabited. Um, the same with the body. Like sometimes when I work, it is specifically through taking this spirit into the body and experiencing it in a completely interior sense. And that's visual too, but it's it's um it's like a kind of interoceptive vision. So it's related to the way that that spirit transforms my sense of myself and the way I perceive. It's so difficult to explain this, but um, you know when you see the rock carvings and um, like in South Africa and people's figures are very distorted and so on because they're in a trance state and they're, they're in a state of transformation and becoming a magical being. It's something very like that. So that the, the inner landscape of the body really distorts quite dramatically from like mundane levels. So mm -hmm. the effect or the, the appearance, the, the, the coming or the presence of the spirit can take many forms, but they do like... Um, particularly in psychedelic or in dream work, they will take a form that can fix. Or even in meditation, I've had similar things where forms appear and are very distinct. So, but not, not uh, I don't know how else to, to yeah. say. It depends on your protocols. 
There's another thing, for example, the, the essay that Peter talks uh, you discussed Lucifer in The Brazen Vessel, and spirits can move through people as well. So you might encounter someone who is at that moment you encounter them and you meet them, inhabited or, or, or the presence of a spirit is there in that encounter and in that, that person. But then that person is not the spirit, but the spirit takes something from the material realm. I mean, spirits are, I think spirits are semi-material. I think it's like the, the psyche, the psyche. In the ancient Greek, it was something which was very, very, like, uh, light and, and, and fine, but not, not solid and dense like the human body. So that when you die or when you're a ghost, you are still, like, you are still a material thing. You are still attached to materiality by the most, like, find threads of of um, material but it's almost too fine to to even show up or to be noticed with our normal senses and i think yeah. a lot of the magical work that we do is for example in dance um peter with various ordeal practices and his um, extreme stuff is ways of altering our capacity to experience through our senses so expanding what our senses can um, perceive. So we, I mean, we live in a we live in a world full, filled with spirits, and it's they're tenuous. So the magician finds protocols and methods to make the presence of spirit less tenuous and more immediate, and and something that you can interact with. So there's, you know. But some people they'll look at it and go, oh well, this is like just this is just like a gestalt. This is like you just you you know you're engaging in a, an, a, an imaginative process. You're projecting an aspect of yourself into something, and, and yet the imaginal is part of it because the imaginal yeah, is also right. this uh, world of light which the spirits can move through and, and take forms and appear to us in. I mean, particularly in dreams, they're very good at that. And um, whether they're spirits of dead people or, or spirits of um, other other kinds of beings, other orders of being. Um, the imaginal, whether that's in the dream world or whether that's in sort of active imagination sense, is actually a magical capacity. The fact that it's the same capacity that we exercise when we daydream or when we just, you know, do mundane dreaming to exercise our minds or, or cleanse our minds or because we are worried about something. It's more to do with what um, what level you're working at when when you're working with the imaginal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so it's, well, so, but what both of you are saying, there's this component, which I think is really important that I, I don't think people talk about enough. And you guys are both saying it in different ways, which is, well, it's a, it's a vessel question, which is like, are you like, have you um, emptied yourself or, or filled yourself or have you prepared set the table, set the scene in such a way that you can begin to understand um, what the fuck the three of us are talking about. So when, <laughs> when, you know, like it, there's a personality component, it's like, have you made yourself kind of a compassionate and thoughtful enough and interested enough person? Um, there's just a life circumstance preparation thing because some people have no spiritual inclination and something just smacks them in the in, in the psyche or the face or you know whatever their life yeah. events are you um 
prepared philosophically and intellectually in a way to be able to ask these kinds of postmodern or critical theory questions that can actually lead you away from the way that you assume things were. All these kinds of things, more than just reading a magic book, although that can help too, um, begin to sort of set the stage because everything that you've both said, it's like, there's a way there's a there's a capacity that's needed to be able to perceive but it's not people perceive different things even after they've developed a piece of that same commonwealth of capacity you know yeah yeah do man also you you you're finding you're finding methods of communication with spirits mm-hmm. so you're establishing you're establishing modes of communication and you're establishing um, points of reference so that I mean the difference between a, a magician and a new ager is that the, the magician is questioning things um, all of the time they're, 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 they want proof that the spirit that they're interacting with is the spirit that he says it is so you know there are the classic texts tests like you you know you ask it to you ask it to demonstrate something it shouldn't have knowledge of you hide something and then you ask the person, who's in communication with the spirit and doesn't know where the object is. Right, right, um, right. And there's the simple, the, there are simple tests of congruity, such as, you know, are all the elements, are all the elements congruent? Is it telling a coherent story or are you dealing with mental static? Are you just dealing with something that you've created? And this is a, you know, this is a constant, it's a constant process of refinement. It's, and you get an energetic response in your body too that tells you to be wary if it's something that it isn't true uh-huh. <laughs> it's like with people it's very very similar to that like um that, that some, some things have very very strong energetic signatures that they can't easily disguise even if they sort of pretend to um i was going to say as well um there has to be a kind of space that you establish where you can both um both magician and spirit can both interact in. And that's something where some compromise has to be found because Mm. we're talking to things which, you know, English isn't their first language. I'm just saying that in a kind of trite way. But, uh, for example, if you're channeling something or the spirit is speaking to you, it's speaking to you in your language, it's speaking to you with what it's found in your psyche and your history it's speaking to you it's kind of recapitulating something which already exists in you and putting it together um the same in the way it appears like our dream consciousness is built out of things that you know it's kind of we've both talked about this like the way our our minds in dream construct these kind of realities that are very some of them are pretty shoddy and some of them are like amazingly (laughs) intricate sometimes it feels like the same piece of stage uh, dressing gets moved, you know, around mm. in different mm. dreams, it appears again in different contexts, and it all looks a little bit like someone's behind the scenes, you know, pulling the strings. And the spirits work in this world as well to, to appear to us or to speak to us. They're speaking to us in our language and in our visionary capacities. So, uh, one of these sort of things that I find problematic about people's dependence on the internet or on like a television and so on, is that all of this blue light stuff is corrupting our capacity for the visionary world, and it's also populating it. It's populating it with particular beings and ideas and visions, and so the spirits will have to talk like through or against that particular current of... It's quite archon, archonic, isn't it, the, the current situation? So 
we're not out in the desert, you know, in a cave or for, for months and months. It's like our minds stilled eventually and able to have this experience and to enter those states and to allow that, that um, <sighs> encounter to occur. Yeah, so, well, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 I finished. Yes. So that, so there's, there is this white noise challenge right now that we face with trying to engage with the spiritual world. But then there's this other, there are these uh, sort of, maybe they're a little outdated, but these versions of it that people, <laughs> it drives me crazy. So this is a Wiccan thing that will drive me crazy, right? It's like someone will pick up a stone or go to a tree or look at a bird or whatever, and like try to commune with the, spirit of those things but there's no there's actually there's a real problem because the way that they're finding differentiation in spirits is through naming them by the physical objects that they inhere around or in or indwell in so it's this kind of materialism that's like very slippery and they end up associating and differentiating only based on what they experience with the material, with their material aspect or their empirical, you know, uh, senses and taxonomies and stuff. Whereas, so this is the, this is the question it's leading to. It's like, you guys write about and work with specific spirits, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not merely identified or schematized by being attached to an object. They actually have, they they have a kind of presence um, that's not just related to that, can't be named that way, and you differentiate. And I want to know, because there's this kind of just sort of flattening version of spirits that like a kind of neo-pagan, like it's all just nature, you know, whatever, it drives me crazy. Yeah. But, but when it's witchcraft, when it's certain kinds of occultism, when it's, you know, certain virtues, we start encountering specifics. Yeah. And so how do the specifics begin to differentiate themselves? If not only, like, how do we say that's one, it's not the right word, but you see what I mean. That's one spirit. That's another spirit. That's another spirit. And these yeah. are how we begin to engage. What makes the distinction for you guys in that? Hmm. That was to get me past. That's a really difficult one, actually, because we only have our sense perception to distinguish. So, mm, okay, we work with Babylon. It's the principal spirit we work with. She's very recognizable. You feel her, you know. Mm -hmm. That's all I can say. And you know when she's... But, I mean, I, I understand Babylon as the sexual force or energy continually erupting in the universe. So there is an aspect of her that appears in in a human sense there's an aspect of her that appears in an almost serpentine form um there's but when she comes it's incredibly obvious it's recognizable and when this energy appears when other people talk about it you can like the the energy signature is so strong it like starts making your skin um you know react and i don't know Peter, this is very difficult and it's different for different spirits no? yeah um see this is this is the difficult thing if you haven't had the experience <laughs> it's almost impossible to right. describe it that's 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 kind of the problem that's I mean, there is a thing that when different magicians have experience with a particular spirit, they start to recognize 
even though there will be differences in the way that spirit appears to them, there are commonalities. There are like little ways that the essence of it, for, for want of a better way of putting it, like kind of is continually appearing through. So, um, oh, it's so difficult to talk about without being. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so. Give signs. They do give signs, and there are like continue, there are, there are uh, mm. consistent things which appear again and again with different people at different times. Okay, well, let me let me pull this back a bit and see if I can untangle it. Um, we're dealing with two different things. So we're dealing with um, we're dealing with the the spontaneous recognition of spirit within an environment. So you go to a place and you you know you you spend time and you you identify. The spirit or spirits in the place and interact with them. That's that, that's one thing that we're talking about. And then there's a second modality, which is you you arrange circumstances that allow you to invite a particular spirit to be present. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 sort of the, the Wiccan example you gave is kind of the first thing where people are like they're they're, they're just kind of like frolicking in nature and they're they're like kind of responding to to whatever they see um which is which is fine but you know you, you need to you need to you need to spend a lot of time in place to actually get a decent a decent connection you need to be regular with that um but the other thing that magicians also do is to create the circumstances which allow them to draw a particular spirit to them for a particular purpose so that's what you'd see with grimoire magic that would be your traditional you know chalk circle on the floor um you know Calling, calling a particular, calling a particular spirit, and binding it and giving it a particular series of tasks. So this is again, you know, the difficulty is that we're talking about we're talking about so such a practices. large subject and so many possible modalities <laughs> of practice right. Right. Um, that it depends. So if I'm calling spirit in circle um, and I want to check it's the right spirit, um, then I have I have methods as a magician of testing it. You know, I can I can challenge it. I can use words. You know, I can use words to constrain it. I can ask it information. I can you know, I can I can pinpoint whether I'm getting what I want or whether I want something different. Whereas if you're encountering something when you're just like you know free flowing through a space, it's a different experience. And the spirits might, might not want to talk to you. You know, a lot of spirits don't give a fuck. I mean, a lot of spirits really they do not they do not want anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're inimical. I mean, they're like mountain spirits. I spend a lot of time in the mountains, and a, and a lot of those elemental spirits, you know, you don't really want to attract their attention because because you know they kill people. You know, people die in accidents all the time in the environment, and these are caused by spirits a lot of the time. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do again with the preparation. Like certain people are supposed to meet and engage with those mountain spirits, but it takes a certain yeah. kind of being. Yeah. Like you don't just get and that you know, like the very common example of this is like, well, people do like they summon demons in the circle and whatever and then they get fucked up. But that's actually kind of like in some ways those beings are some of the weakest beings that you could possibly encounter. Because if they were not if they were stronger, like that shit just wouldn't work. You know, I mean, I'm not encouraging everybody to go out and do that. And it certainly can really mess you up, like doing scrying and doing, I mean, you can have real effects on you and the people around you, but it's interesting to me. Like I'm thinking of the orbital, you know, for example, which is, you know, for people who don't know, it's this, um, this 
magical text from the 16th century. And these beans in the text are huge. They're huge beans. So the really fascinating thing, which makes it very distinct from other grimoires, is that the authors, whoever they were, probably related to Paracelsus in some way, have this whole thing where they're like, just remember this is all about God. Remember this is all about love. Remember this is all about, like, and they keep saying it again. They keep writing it again and again because there's that preparatory, there's that preparatory necessity there. So in some ways, you know, I think, again, that's part of it. It's some sort of preparation. It was the same thing in Franz Barden's, you know, initiation into hermetics. He has this, it's just like a sentence and I love it. But he's like, one of the reasons magic doesn't work for people is because like, they don't take care of their bodies, you know? And it's just like, he's like, brush your body, like take care of yourself, you know? And, and Rudolf Steiner said the same thing. Like, well, a lot of people just aren't getting what I'm saying. Cause like they just eat shit. You know, like they don't eat good food, you know, <laughs> like it's it's so simple. And that doesn't mean that you have to be an athlete. I'm not saying any of that at all. I'm saying there are different, pa- different pathways of preparation I, lead to different beings. You do. Yeah. I mean, you another way you do have to be an athlete. Yeah. It's yeah. like the aesthetics. The, the idea of the ascesis comes from the terms for, used for athletis, uh, athletics in ancient Greece. So mm. The idea that an aesthetic was actually an athlete of death or an athlete of the soul, depending on what their focus was, it's, mm. isn't. You are athlete about it. It's, you, you have to train to withstand like the spirit being present either before you or, or within you. It's, it's really, um, spirits don't really care because they don't understand how fragile humans are. So you find that they use you and they keep placing demands on you. And sometimes, I mean, it's happened to me a number of times where I've had to put a spirit at distance from me for an extended time in order not to be like just physically absolutely depleted from it because they were like waking, they wake you up at any time, they demand from you all the time. (laughs) So there's this uh, necessity to be like, oh, Mm, psychically very very strong to withstand and to, to control that but also physically strong so that you can command them but so, so you can uh, control them in that sense whether within or, or without you yeah i think i think you're right con i mean well one of one advantage coming from the position uh, you come from with with theosophy and these ideas is that you're not alien to things like um like spiritual authority mm. or grace or any of these concepts which um, you know people think of as being traditionally Christian, but often in 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 the magical world they um, they skip past as moderns because they don't understand that the only way to actually engage with these spirits is to develop spiritual authority, and you only develop spiritual and authority and grace well. through 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 work, and it's not you know, and it's not all glamorous work, you know, it's 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 not. Um, it's, it's submission to a kind it, of, and it doesn't end up with a nice Instagram picture at the fucking end of it. You know? <laughs> it's, it's not, this is it's not what it's about. Um, mm-hmm. And and when you're talking about the example of circle work, well, here's the big here's what here's one of the big issues that 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 I've spent many years addressing. So when you see modern magicians and they talk about the grimoires and they're like, oh, I'm a modern magician, I'm like big old big almighty blah, and it's like, well. Can I just stop you a second and, 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 and ask you what your relationship is to Almighty God or Jesus Christ? Because the texts that you're using require you to call on those names and to work under those auspices. What the fuck are you talking about? 
What the fuck are you talking about? You know, unless you are actually, unless you are using these names um, as a result of processes that you've been through in a relationship that you've developed, then you're just another moron with a with a stupid <laughs> hobby on the internet. Well, it's yeah. I mean, it's also like I mean, this thing I said to our our mutual friend Gordon White, I think, on one of the episodes of his show, Rune Soup, that I was on. I was it's just said like, why the fuck would you do like you know goisha like why would you do that stuff when you could just do like the secret like if you don't if if, like if all you want is that stuff from it like this is way easier and will fuck you up less and you're not gonna have to do like you could just make a vision board it's fine like you don't have to do all this other stuff and you know like and then you can also just stay in this mode of reality because it it's like it actually works better when you in that way there has to be more of a purpose for you and it has to include yes ev- 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 evoking the context you know and the contextual beings now so <laughs> there are a few tensions between what you guys do and what i do and i wanted to tease those out a little bit and take some time i don't think they're they're opposing but they're sure. tensions that are worthy of conversation so the first one being Babylon, I think we should talk about. Like when I'm reading the Brazen Vessel, you have an invocation uh, of Babylon in there, and um, you know, being someone who's deeply invested in Christian esotericism, I read it, and then, and I felt bad, and then I read it to my. I also felt compelled to read it out loud to somebody later. So thanks a lot. So I read. <laughs> I read it out loud to somebody and then I was really like, Oh fuck. Like, why did, why did I now just do this? So it, it brought an accompanying feeling of, of a kind of fear to me. And part of it is the, the refutation of Christ and John in it, where as, I mean, I think Christ is, it's Christ is kind of an inevitability for anybody who has a, a, a sort of magical consciousness right now. But, but John is like, that's not, that's someone that I would, meet and talk to and sort of try to get into what he was doing and, and all this. And so there are these kinds of, and so I was trying to explain to somebody about it. I was like, I don't think they're doing it. I don't think they're doing a bad thing. I think that they're trying to engage with this being and really try to understand in a way that is, uh, yeah, loving. I'll just, uh, since I'm the Christian, I'll say loving. There's loving of, of, of this being and loving of its presence and re- relates to it in this way because that's so important for that being's presence. But, um, I still couldn't quite reconcile the feeling, you know, like yeah. the, the feeling experience of reading that invocation and, and also feeling the need to read it again. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just sort of want to talk about that tension maybe and hear what you're thinking when I say that as well. <laughs> it's very sweet, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really nice, Connor. Um we we talk to we talk to quite a lot of Christians. In fact, um I I spend more of my time um reading reading right. reading the Bible and reading reading various theological <laughs> texts than occult books. It's kind of like a joke that I, I have. <laughs> More, more copies of the Bible than I do of the, the latest spooky, spooky occult books. Um, okay, we can't get away from we can't get away from John and Revelation within our culture. 
Um, your your position is going to be slightly different because I think you approach things from a Christ-centered point. So you will have read the Gospels and you will have a particular view of Christ um, that you will um, that that you have a personal relationship with to to some degree, and that's great. You know, I don't I have no problem with 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 people who have that that approach. I'm I'm in a tradition of Gnostics who have read um, read the Bible and read Revelation, and um, we have not been convinced with the theology or the um, or the script as it has been laid laid out before us. So I I I don't have anything good to say about Jesus. Personally, um, my my experience my experience with um, with Christianity is that I see it as an extremely damaging and dangerous religion, which has um, destroyed the ancient world, has destroyed art, religion, literature, sex, the relationship between um, between men and women. Um, that's a force for um, evil and oppression in the world. Um, it's been it's been it's been an unmitigated disaster from my from my perspective. Therefore, when I read a text like Revelation, an esoteric text, a text which can be read on many levels, um, I discover within it a different story. And I discover a story in which the individuals who are being demonized, um, literally, literally demonized, um, have a history which predates the Bible, which I'm particularly interested in, which I have a, a personal um, resonance with. So when I first encountered Revelation and the Bible, um, I was aware that there was something going on in this text that no one could explain to me effectively. I mean, when you when you talk to Christians about Revelation, generally they don't want to, certainly in English Christianity, they don't want anything to do with it. Because it's such a problematic text. It's really problematic. Um, not least because, um, you know, along with the Gospels, Christianity has, uh, has set itself a major problem. And the major problem is this. For Christianity to be true, Christ has to return within the lifetime of the apostles. Now, this does not happen. They were, they were waiting for the bodily return of Christ. And it absolutely failed. John follows. And John says something similar. John's also frightened. Um, Find about the return of Nero, um, the immortal Nero, as the as the wounded beast, because he's again he's again waiting for the return of the saviour figure who is imminent, imminent. Christ is coming, and he's coming to remake the world and lift the Christians to paradise. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's no way you can read the text and not come away with an understanding that this is the time scale that they've set themselves. Mm-hmm. But then the church continues to develop, and the church fails to answer the question of why hasn't the saviour returned? And so it becomes metaphysical. And so it becomes a personal struggle. And so it gets pushed into into a into a crisis coming, but not yet, but not yet, but not yet, but not yet, but not yet. And that script <laughs> is so fundamentally dangerous for society mm, 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 that it says that there is a final conflict, there is an enemy, there's this radical... Um, Almost it, as though we have to push things to an absolute point of crisis. It's almost accelerationist. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. 
what Dee was trying to do, like quicken it with, with a sort of an alchemical method with the angelic workings. He was trying to bring about the renewal mm. by, by bringing the, the apocalypse on faster. So, so what I did was I, I looked at these figures and I, I, I traced back the, the history of these figures. Um, and I found that it was possible to, to tell a different story. So I tell a, I tell a, um, an older and a longer story about these figures. And yes, there is something, um, unsettling, something dangerous, mm-hmm. something frightening about them. And I've had these, I, the funny thing is that people say, oh, you're a, you're a devotee of Babylon, or that must be great. And it's like, <laughs> not necessarily, not necessarily, you know, when I see her in, when I see her in vision, when she comes to me, this is not always, you know, this is, this is tied up with the destruction of the world. This is tied up with mm-hmm. the, uh, the death of all things. This is tied up with, with my personal dissolution. This is a, this is a, a very difficult place to inhabit. So, so, so when I'm, when I'm pursuing this path of like, uh, you know, surrender, um, and, you know, absolute devotion and it's, it's not something that I'm, I, I expect other people to do. This is not something which is for everybody. Yeah. I you know, will, it, 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 it certainly isn't, but it, but it, but it, but the thing that comes through, in your work and also in or in your writing and also I think in the per- performance piece, the dance piece is that sure it's not for everybody. And yet like no one would, at least I don't think no one would doubt the uh, committed attenuation to yeah. lovingly engaging with this, yeah, sometimes terrifying being. I mean, I think there's so much to say there, which is why I just wanted to jump in because I didn't want to lose the threads of the things yeah. I want to say about what. So, the first thing I would say, and this is, you know, the first thing I would say is that the, you know the Bible is definitely not the best book for explaining Christianity or depicting Christianity. <laughs> so I think that that's a, a big part of what. You know, there are people who have done Christian work, which have gotten much closer than what is laid down in the Bible, I think, to the Christ being. And the narrative that comes out of the Bible, you know, you you guys both mentioned something about, in some interview, I forget where, but it was like, you know, about the Christian destruction of the old gods. One of the things that Christianity, I think, has done with destroying the old gods part of that project was also to destroy christ like that's my encounter with it like we are actually severing the 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 connectivity and the relationality between these beings and christ because we will also destroy christ in the process of doing that and instead something else will indwell the bible and what comes after and what we do with it and so for me you know um in the invocation of Babylon, there's this thing like, John, you did not destroy Babylon. You know, like I love, I love this line because it's Mm -hmm. revelatory (laughs) to me that John and Babylon reveal each other. It's not like, uh, it's not what, it's not cause and effect. It's actually like the fluorescence of these two beings together in tension. Visions of Babylon as well. When you read Revelation, you can't help but just be breathless at this vision. Totally. 
Totally. And that's another reason why it's so problematic to Christians is because there's magic and beings in it. Like, how how difficult is that? But for the people that ex- explain Christianity in a serious way, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things I would say is, you know, um, Rudolf Steiner, Daskalos, there's one other person, but I can't pronounce his name properly, so I'll leave him out. But people who have explored Christ properly, um, I, some, I sometimes say, like, anthroposophy is the only way to actually be Christian. Like, it's the only way to really do it anymore, because everything else has just been a complete distortion. You know, mystical Christianity is just so stupid sometimes and, and buys into all the myths that you just, I mean, beautifully, I think, really beautifully, everything you said, just deserve to be torn asunder or dissected or scrutinized or whatever. But there are real ways to be Christian and to relate to the Christ being. But it's just, it's extremely complex, arduous, heartbreaking, terrorizing, and frightening. And also, and also all the love feelings and those, those feelings of, you know, warmth and all that. And I would love to somehow bring those the, you know, it's part of it's part of when I talk with you guys more often is bringing back into relation the, you know, that that vision. The vision's not even the right word. The encounter with Christianity and the encounter with with Babylon, because there's a there is a severing that has been done yeah. by other beings. You know, um, that I that I I, I worry a, about. Well, wow, everybody that's listening to this, thank you for dealing with this part of, <laughs> part of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but anyway, sorry. I agree with you. I think that's um, this bringing them into relation. One of the reasons I found this calling and a continual um, wells of inspiration coming through working with Babylon is precisely to heal this rift with Christ, with Christianity, because I was brought up Catholic, I was brought up as a Christian. Mm. And it didn't make any sense for me, neo-paganism, because for me, the the gods belong in the places, in, in particular, like, in a particular experience of cult. And I don't think you can just superimpose that on in a modern setting, and especially divorced from location, from the place, um, where it has to travel with people and, and move in this way. And you can't just resurrect it, but with Babylon, you find a way to work that, I found a way to work that resolved me with the issues I had from being brought up Catholic and with this figure that had been demonized, which kind of struck me very personally. I mean, my my grandmother was labeled as a scarlet woman because she was married several times and she married the wrong person, the wrong color. And mm. so there was like, she was considered lesser for this. And so was her, so were her children. On account of this, and it's a, it's it's not a. So this Christian morality was imposed directly on the women in my family, and I felt this, and so I needed to find a way to work through that and to resolve those things, which do cause me, like almost kind of like psychic tremors continually because of the the the, the injustices and the pain that has been done in the past. So that I, I understand, like, Christ is the anointed one, the anointed one. Why can't she be the anointed one? Mm-hmm. Why can't she be the, 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 the soteriological figure? Why, why can't she be the one who comes? Because her coming brings something different. She was the one who was, you know, 
the firstborn in hell. She was the one who died first and went into the underworld and came back again to conquer death. She did all these things before Christ did them, you know, millennia before Christ did them, but yet she was written out because she, of her female sex. Because obviously, like, the, the, the femininity, this, this, this connection with creation has been severed and this, this connection with sex, sex particularly. So I find her a, a very difficult figure to work with because... She is absolutely ambiguous in it. She's very destructive, but the creation is also completely there as well. And the orgasmic, and there's nothing more healing than the orgasm, but at the same time, the orgasm is the thing which annihilates you. So for me, working with Babylon is the way to not <laughs> deny my past and the history that I have experienced and that my ancestors have experienced, but to go forward and to work with the spiritual world in a way that is actually more coherent to that, but is um, maybe Gnostic, as Peter says. It's, uh, it's a totally different reading of it. Yeah, well, I, it's so, <laughs> so, no, I mean, so, it's so incredible because, like, my understanding of Christ is that the healing power actually is sexual, that mm. that's sexual, that that's sex is like it's it's transmuted you know i mean if you read the gospels as a book of healing and medicine um you can start to ask these questions well how did that how did that work and then when you start to sort of go into like what happened you find sexual answers um i mentioned this on a on an episode i did with scott elliot hicks but i went to vietnam and they have this like giant pillar there in the, the, the museum of vietnamese medicine and there's just this giant pillar and it's a it's a lingam yoni right like i had not seen it exactly the right way and i don't know if it was a real one like that they had brought the stone there if they had carved it for the museum whatever but i walk into this room and this you know giant thing that well whatever I, people can imagine what it looks like but it's this pillar and it's like i know you like that was the immediate and i was like okay what do i what do i do so i just kind of tried to prepare myself for it in a sort of christian way really rudimentary i kind of panicked i was like i'm going to do the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram which is something i don't even really do anymore but i was like uh okay i need to be protected as i encounter this wild thing in a country i've only i've never been to before and like what the fuck is happening and as soon as i put my hand on it like the immediate question which i was not it was not bitten by me and it was just like period was what is the pleasure of the christ and it was just there immediately and so that question's been haunting me since mm. that moment and um driving me into these driving me into these places and why there's such a connectivity with the image of babylon that you encounter and the pre-christian cycle of going descending into the center of the earth and coming back up and populating the layers of the earth with blood and what why all of that why were those, um, why did it happen before is also an interesting question to me. Why in time, you know? And so I think there are all these places of entryway for that kind of healing, like that kind of bridge work, whatever that means. And you can also, I mean, anybody that's listening to this and likes what Peter and Alcusis do and doesn't like the Christian shit I'm saying, you can reject it. We don't have to heal anything. Like there's validity in the work without the healing, but maybe that's something that can, you know, take take place as well yeah i mean i think it would be it would be hypocritical for us as gnostics to exclude any personal readings of of 
of, of the religion and text. I mean, what, what, what you're doing, Connor, is, is really no different to what we're doing, but you just have a, you just, you just have a different relationship with text to us. Mm-hmm. You just have a different relationship with that. I think we've both identified that sex is at the root of it all and that, that <laughs> somehow we have to resolve ourselves with our, with our sex, with the yeah. thing that mm-hmm. brings us into this world and, and, and condemns us as soon as we're born. And that, mm-hmm. that difficult sitting with death, which we're, very, very dramatically facing now, but any everybody faces, and that that fear with the consciousness of death is always there. Mm-hmm. And isn't it so interesting that the that the conflicts taking place right now? Because this is something that Gordon and I just talked about three years ago, like on repeat to every podcast we were on, is about sex and witchcraft. Like the, the, the dominant, like end of the world resistance narrative from people that consider themselves to be conservatives is about sex and, and witchcraft. Yeah. You have a really amazing line. You're referring to Bataille, Peter, in an essay, but and for Bataille, the sacred, uh, the sacred is nature at its greatest intensity, which violates the world of profane to destroy rationality with ecstasy, right? And then you you move, I mean, what a great fucking line, everybody. But then you move on to, you know, this this Baudrillard thing where it's like, well, what do we have to do after the orgy? And you rightly, like, <laughs> I say this when I'm talking to people about sexual politics, but it's like, we haven't fucking had the orgy yet, like Baudrillard, calm, calm the fuck down. Like, you want to, you want to jump over you know, um, <laughs> you you want to like pe- like Marxists want to say like sex positivity was a failure, and I'm like, when did that happen? Like, what kind of what, that 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 hasn't happened yet? So, yeah. we, I think we we all we're all recognizing here that the centrality of sex, orgasm, you know, um, and pleasure as a potent uh, destructor of the structures that no structure could contain it, none of them. So it would always spill over and always consume. So um, we we know that. I mean, Wilhelm Reich's probably the only, like, as far as I'm concerned, one of the only people that was, like, really investigating that that wasn't a, a strict occultist seriously, you know, for his entire life. Because, you know, like, if you decide to make guns that, you know, harness sexual energy to affect weather, like, you're doing something correct, you know? <laughs> but but I but I think, you know, so let's turn it to that for a second then, too, as a, as a tactic, you know, um, as we enter this last part of the conversation about tactics. Like, what is this sexual tactic, strategy, this dangerous yet completely necessary and also pleasurable substance spiritual substance that can strike, you know, the, the pillars and shake them. What is that? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> <laughs> the <We're> void. Just... <laughs> I think there are so many answers to that. I think that's the beautiful thing about it. I think there are, there are so many expressions of that, of that, sexuality and that that explosion of of life and meaning and transcendence and the destruction of boundaries that that people can find in so many ways so many ways there's no there's no one right way to do it i mean you know when people talk about sex magic it's like well that there are many kinds of sex Mm -hmm. there are many kinds of magic you know and and 
like you, um, you know, we, we agree with, with your point, which is that, that everyone has to ex- explore their, their sexual persona to the greatest extent possible. Mm-hmm. You do have to go into your own, this is where like the body leads you because everybody's so unique. Like the, the imprinting, the sexual imprinting we get, we get at a very early age. So the first experience we have is in the mother's womb the first tactile experience, the first erotic experience, and then being held by her, breastfeeding, um, and then the father holding the child. All of these uh, influences start to mold your body to receive that sensation, which then becomes pleasure, becomes your ability to experience pleasure, becomes the things that turn you on. And these are quite individual because everybody has things that, like imprint them at different stages of their development but usually at quite a young age we have already started to take a particular like an idiosyncrasy or individuate in some way our sexual characters and we can continue to explore and develop them and be and and develop our nervous system our response to pleasure and this is some this is the work with babylon this is the work that we do but it's down to the individual to do that and to be like absolutely honest in that confrontation with their sex, with their sexual um, awareness, with that force within them, because that force is incredibly destructive. And one of the things that is destroying the world now is that force gone wrong, that force perverted, because it's so powerful that it can, you know, it is the, 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 co- the connection between Babylon and the city, for instance, and therefore, and through that empire, is this extractive thing which is destroying through appetite the world. But that same force, if it wasn't constrained in the wrong way, starts to like liberate us. So it has, it has both a very like negative, and I think this is where people's fear of that comes in that their fear of, of a force that they can't control because of your, your, your experience in sex, in, in this state of absolute arousal and ecstasy, is not always a comfortable experience for people to be in. And to get into that state, you have to surrender yourself so much. You have to do a lot of work on on allowing those energies to, to move through you, to transform you. So I think that's a very personal work. That's something that each person has to recapitulate for themselves and then develop and find that path through their own body. So this is why I always say that your body is your teacher. There can't be some other person. A person can guide you. A person can see. And it's very hard to be a teacher today because everybody's an expert. So to have the authority to tell someone and to, to not to tell someone like uh, with compassion that something they're doing is wrong or they should do something else is very difficult because people don't want to listen and people know and everyone has too many ideas and everybody's half full. So it's it's really important to do the work of just like radical honesty, the, the confronting the mirror to see who you are, to, to overcome all those things that you're frightened of about your body, the way you appear to other people, the the, the things that pull your power away from you and and, 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 and and disengage you from that source within you, within your sex. So, yeah, sex is the answer. <laughs> sex. Um, Everything. <laughs> that's going to be the title of this episode. Sex. Exclamation point. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think it's, all, it's all pointing to, you know, uh, I don't know if you have read the Elenka Zipanchich book yet, the What is Sex book. I'm just a Lacanian analyst. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's one of the only 
sort of good books about sex to come out in a really long time, I think, directly about sex. She's she's wrong ultimately because she has no spiritual like point to make. But but she gets so close, and basically she you know she says like sex is the void from which all you know em- the the nothingness from which all emerges, which is ultimately I think not true, um, but very close to being true. So like you're both saying, you know what I understand is like sex is the most individual is the most individual thing about a person aside from perhaps the continuous line of incarnated personalities from their individuality. So it's like, you know, you incarnate, you have your life between, you know, you have your life between death and rebirth, you incarnate again. And that line of lives is completely, you know, a completely you with this sort of, self thing whatever the fuck that is like pulsing in that but when you're in a person when when you're here incarnated in this way sex actually is the most individuated thing about you it's so low in a positive sense it's all of it it's all these factors you know and um and so nobody can answer nobody can answer that for you and everything else extends from it and there's no way to even it to, to gaze upon it you have to go into a kind of nothing uh, well, at least a, a portrait of nothingness, even if it's not the nothingness itself, but it's something very close to nothingness. And so I think that that's it. And when, when you do that, you know, the line I always say is like, if you ever want to know how somebody feels about freedom, start talking about sex, because then you're talking about real individual individuation. And that is the most threatening thing to these structures um, of power and people and institutions and power. It's so threatening. Yeah, so. We're in a staggeringly sexually repressed time. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, 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 in a stage, we're in a stage where where sex is so sex and desire is so demonised, mm-hmm. but so ever present that it's but in, in a very grotesque way, not in like in its purest form. I mean, we're very inundated and, and saturated with images of sex, but the actual experience of it and this is, is different. So there are, there are perhaps a couple of things that we can consider here. I mean, one is emerging from these various lockdowns. There's there's an opportunity for people to like really understand what physical contact means on many levels. Now that we're entering back into human society, whether that's you know giving someone a hug or shaking hands or or making love, there's a, there's an opportunity having had this fallow period to really think about what that is. And then, then perhaps to ask a, a secondary question, and you were talking about the, the line of the line of past lies, and you know yeah. where, where where we're all standing on the, the shoulders of our ancestors. Well, there's another question that can be asked, which is, what if we're the last generation? What if what if we are the last generation? What if what we're seeing now is the end mm-hmm. of? human life on the planet what does it mean to be the last people to have sex what does that what does that last sexual encounter mean when there is no future generation to come i mean there are so many there are so many interesting questions that we're faced with um and like you we we you know we approach these things and we think that there is there is an answer there in sex in this experience in this Radical. Sex is also the thing that's been intertwining all of our histories because we are these uh, 
we are like the final flowering or fruits of these great like trees of lineage. But mm-hmm. those trees are also intertwined so many times because sex is the thing which divides us is the thing which is always a mm. bringing you know the other with it. You know when when a, when a new child is created, it has a choice of genetic material to choose from mm-hmm. from two different lines. So it's uniting something, but it's making a choice as well. And we, I believe we are the last generation. I don't think we have much time left on this planet. So, <laughs> but as a what if, it is a very important thing to recognize that. I have to get where I'm going. <laughs> it's exactly this. We're here now. We have to be present with this. We are like the final flower of this is true. Mm. So, so whether you agree or disagree with, with our theological positions or our, or our position on apocalypse, in everyone's individual life, you're always living through an apocalypse. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're always living through a stage where when you die, everyone you know dies, the planet dies to you. Right. So this, this meditation on, on presence and being and and connection with others and losing self and moving through these boundaries and moving through species boundaries and this is this is what we're here to do this is this is the work and that's why we why we keep going back to the image the image of the couple the image of the sabbath because these are these are places where that radical exchange is going on and that radical exchange is what makes us human it's that moving from you know the individual to the many. It's this. It's this constant. It's dance. community. Even as an individual, you're a community of many elements and coming together in community and sharing, sharing together. Yeah, it's so so. <laughs> yeah, it's <clears throat> in the same way that language is a you know it's a positive void through which. Uh, the 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 presence of speech and meaning uh, uh, arrives through sex is the same thing right like when we talk about intercourse not about not about sex itself that's something different but when we have sex or we do sex in in many ways like dance or writing or whatever what, there's a series of actions just like in our mouths when we speak the tongue is moving the spittle is forming the lips are moving the air is being carved and all that with sex there are these series of movements through which the arrival and presence of something can come so i think it's really important to think of that and then also to think of that in the presence of like well what are earth processes right now what are cultural processes what actually is being released and you know when you when you say i do think we're the last i i don't but but we but (laughs) But the ultimate question for me is still the same, you know, and, and not, and, and this really frustrates people um, when I say this, because what people want to think is like, well, the earth is dying, but it'll be without humans. So who cares? You know? And it's like, well, first of all, some scientists have pointed out that that's not true. That actually like Jim Lovelock is fond of saying this. He's like, look, we're actually part of the biota that helps regulate the conditions on earth. So as soon as we're gone, it'll be there for a little bit, but like it's going to go too, because we're the only ones that are actually also regulating the atmosphere. So there's that. It's like the animals, the bacteria, all that, it won't last very long, but the, you know, but 
left out of this uh, collision of stars and Earth. No, no. Well, right. <laughs> right. But I, th- but I think, I think, like, more to the point, we need to, we need to see, like, the purpose of the Earth is to die. Like, that's part of its purpose as well. It, it has to have a death process, mm-hmm. and whether that's now or not, it, it's up to us to understand the death process and not in the dumb (laughs) the dumb exhaustingly stupid way of like well like it's it's gonna die anyway so might as well have a party or even this sort of version of that that's like well we need to shepherd it you know we need we need to midwife it the the hospice model can fuck off right (laughs) because it's not it's not real like there there is there's a part of it i understand just like there's a part of let's have a party that's true like there are these aspects of these different narratives that really make sense to me but the earth as the earth as its own purposeful being in relation to us it is meant it is meant to die and in some ways i wonder if we were meant to kill it i mean and that's another that's another question for us to take on are were we supposed to not just hospice but murder you know i don't know but i i think that these questions are really important and um and they're important whether we live or die um and and may, <laughs> and whether we ever really die or we only completely die and we blot out. I mean, these are really important to ask. And the only way I think to answer that is through engagement with, uh, engagement with these spirits, these evolving states of consciousness, and then the, the moving away from the endless obsession with a world that is merely filled with objects. And to that end, um, I thank you both for doing real I mean, real engagement and real dance with that. So thank you so much. And thanks for having this conversation. Right, it's a pleasure. It's, like, it's lovely to have a, have a conversation with you, Connor. I mean, it's, been a, <laughs> it's been a long time coming. So. It, has, it has been, yeah. So uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.